welcome to ICU, a podcast where we advocate that compassion and connection save lives. They also make life pretty cool. I'm your host, Julie Lee. I see you. Let's be friends. Hey, welcome to I See You. This is episode 26. Hi, I'm Jame, an addict in recovery. Did you know that if you just type in I See You podcast and Julie Lee in Google, our podcast shows up. Isn't that cool? I did that for the first time today because I usually look at reviews off my phone, but my phone isn't with me. And so it was super exciting to look up a review that way and to be the first thing that you can click on. Made me feel kind of legit. All right. This is from Julie Lyman, five stars. And the title is Love Them All. I've never binge listened to a podcast before this one. Tears, laughter, and moved, not only by emotion, but by inspiration. Love them, Julie. You are changing the world with your gifts. Okay, cool that your name is Julie, first of all. Thank you for that. And thank you for calling it my gift. I really appreciate that. That's like my goal in life is to find my mission, my gifts, and do it. Whatever it is that God wants me to do. So I appreciate that. I have 48 reviews so far. Maybe we can reach 50 by next week. We'll see. That would be a big deal. And guess what? I received my first not five-star review this week, and I'm kind of excited about it because I feel like that makes me more legit. I received a three-star review, and whoever did it, I love you. Now, everybody else, don't go change yours to three stars. No need for that. (laughs) All right, as always, please subscribe and leave a review so I can feature you. Just a caution before we go into this episode, we are going to be talking specifically about drug addiction, and the content in it is going to be appropriate for a more mature audience. So if I were you, I might not blast this in your car with your little kids, unless that's a conversation that you are ready to have, then go for it and good luck. With that, here we go. Here's James Kelly. All right. We are here with James Kelly. Hey, James. Hey, how you doing? Good. How are you? Doing good. So I know a little bit about you, but our listeners don't. So will you first start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Um, I am 36 years old. Been married for 15 years. Have five little beautiful little children. I grew up in northern Wyoming, in a small town just outside of Yellowstone called Cody. Um, had a great childhood. Yeah, I spent a lot of times outdoors, climbing trees and playing out in the, the creek. A lot of hunting and fishing. That was kind of what we did growing up for for meat to survive. We were kind of poor country kids. Always had a big garden. I didn't know everybody didn't butcher deer and elk on their kitchen <laughs> table, but apparently that's not normal, but I, I absolutely loved it. I learned a lot about uh, being close with nature, and yeah, my parents were amazing. Taught me the right way to be and how to be a good person, so yeah. yeah. So you really like lived off the land, kind of, yeah? Yeah, we did a lot. That's um, really neat. Yeah. You don't hear about that as much anymore. That's really just like specific and cool about your family. Okay, well, you're here because you're going to talk to us about your journey with drug addiction. Mm-hmm. First, I want to ask you, do you want to tell us what you do for work? Sure. Um, right now, I work with Volunteers of America. Um, it's an adult detoxification center. It's a social model detox, so it's a safe place where people can detox from whatever substances they're coming off of. It's in Salt Lake City. There's, um, as you know, an epidemic of heroin and meth in our cities right now. And people are overdosing constantly. We're there as a safe place for people to detox. And we provide them with resources like housing and treatment centers, most especially, so they can escape the, the addictions that they found themselves in. Well, and I bet it's really neat for them to work with someone that has been through it before. Can you tell us about how your journey started with having a drug addiction? 
Absolutely. Right after I got married, I was working on a dairy farm, and I wanted to get out of the farming life. Um, and I had a grandfather that was the chief of police in Cody, where I lived, and I, I wanted to go into law enforcement. Um, so I started studying that, and I was hired at the Powell, Wyoming Police Department. I was a police officer for about three years. And that's actually, ironically enough, where my addiction began. In law enforcement, um, the men and women in that job go through so much and see and experience things that, well, they do it so, so that we don't have to, so our families can be safe and we can avoid all that. I absolutely loved the job. I loved the people I worked with. Uh, but at the same time, I saw uh, and experienced things that were extremely traumatic. At the time, I was completely naive to, to any of that, to PTSD. I didn't even know what it meant. Um, I thought it was, you know, just something for soldiers. People don't realize that police officers also have to respond to uh, a wide variety of things that can be traumatic. Um, I pulled children out of, you know, mangled vehicles from motor vehicle crashes, had a, an infant die in my arms, was involved in a shooting, um, saw somebody shot right in front of me. Anybody who's been in a combat situation will tell you as soon as a, a bullet flies past your head, everything changes. Um, your life's really never the same after that. So I was experiencing a lot of, of trauma from these experiences, and I didn't understand why. I didn't know what I was going through. Um, at the time, you know, a little town police officer, I thought addicts were bad people. I truly honestly believed that, that, you know, these drug addicts were, were the bad guys, and they were who I was out there to stop. I was injured, and... At one point, the doctors put me on Percocet. Injured from the police job? Yeah. You got injured? Okay. Yeah. I was hit by a, a drunk driver. And they put me on this medication and thought, you know, if a doctor prescribes it, there's no possible way it could be bad. Right. Um, I had no idea what addiction was, like I said. The first time I took the, that little pill and immediately felt better than I felt in my entire life. All my stress went away. All my physical pain um, just it all lifted away and I felt really good for the first time in my life. Wow. And so I thought I'd found the magic pill, you know? Yeah. I could do my job better, not hurt mentally and emotionally. Uh, the traumatic things I'd been through, they didn't bother me anymore as long as I had that feeling. Uh-huh. Um, so I continued to take those pills for a couple of years. Percocet? And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And hydrocodone, really, whatever was available. And the doctor had no problem prescribing it to a police officer because of course you're trustworthy and back then during those years you didn't even need to go about another avenue of getting it you just kept getting it from your doctor yeah told him it helped me and yeah. so he prescribed me more and when i'd start to become tolerant to it he'd up the dose or give me more yeah um, did you have any idea what was going on that you were getting addicted at this point i had no idea absolutely none i know that seems silly but i was a small town boy I thought, you know, I'm a good person. Yeah. Addiction is something that happens to people who are bad people. Right. <laughs> and then it was a couple of years later, I finally woke up one morning and realized I couldn't quit. I tried and the physical and mental and emotional pain of withdrawals is so severe. It's something you can't really explain unless you've been through it. Torture is the only word to describe it. Your body, your brain just scream for more and it gets so bad that you will do anything to make it stop. Uh, at some point when we become so tolerant to, especially with opiates, whatever drug you're addicted to, 
you get to a point where it's not to, to get high anymore. It's just not to feel horrible. You have yeah. to take it. You're, you're caught in that trap where you have to take it, and it runs your life. It's the only thing you think of from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. Do I have enough to make it through the month? How am I going to get more? That's all you think about, and you become very self-centered, addiction-centered person. So was there a point when your doctor stopped prescribing it to you? Not at that point. Um, we moved on. I left the police department. Um, I was just, I was getting too stressed out. I was getting hard-hearted. Um, that's kind of what happens to a lot of police officers, unfortunately, in order to survive all the horrible things you see and do and the paranoia of people trying to, to kill you and you can't go anywhere. You can't go to the grocery store or the movie theater without running into people you've arrested. Um, wow. You're worried about your family at all times. Especially in a small town, I bet. Exactly. That's hard. Yeah, people don't appreciate law enforcement for what they do. It came down to a point where I was at a rollover just outside of town. A car had been going too fast around the corner. It rolled over, ejected the driver and the, the passengers. They weren't wearing seatbelts, and the car had actually rolled over top of the driver. And I was the first one there. I started doing CPR on him, even though it was absolute gore. I knew he was dead, but I had to keep trying until the ambulance got there. The ambulance arrived, they took over, and then another police officer, sheriff's deputy, long time on the force, showed up, and he walked over, and he barely glanced at the body, stepped right over the top of it, and started talking to me about a, a court case we had coming up. It just, it hit me so hard. I never want to reach the point where I'm that hard-hearted, where you can step over somebody's body and literally not think anything of it, because it becomes so hardened to it. That's when I decided I need to get out of law enforcement. And I was thoroughly addicted to pills at that time and didn't didn't know it. But uh, went off to college. <clears throat> as soon as I got to college, I went to study the doctor right away. And and you have kids. You're married with kids at this point, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. We had uh, three of our five kids at that point. The doctor there, once I got to school, started immediately prescribing me the, the same thing that I was given. Uh, no questions asked. Because you had an injury on the job from being a cop? And uh, I had a bad back from growing up. You know, chronic pain is something I'd always dealt with, so that seemed to solve the problem. But also at that point, uh, the doctor was kind of skeptical, didn't think, you know, you're a young guy, maybe you shouldn't be having this. So they started to question, and that started to worry me, because I realized that I couldn't even go, you know, a couple hours without taking a pain pill. That's also when I started to experiment a little bit more. Uh, I saw in a movie just randomly someone crushing up a pill and snorting it. Mm -hmm. So I thought I would try it <clears throat> one night when I was home alone. I did. I crushed up a couple of the pills and snorted them. It hurt horribly bad, but it also felt incredible. And from then on, I never used them without snorting them. Okay. Um, once you start, once you get to that point, it gives you much bigger rush and better feeling faster. Yeah, once you reach that point, you know you're completely trapped. That's when I started realizing I've got a problem. But I was so embarrassed by it that I'd do everything I could to keep it quiet. Nobody knew at that point. Was Tara concerned at this point at all or anything? She had about no the pills? idea. Yeah, no. my wife had no idea. I kept it very secret. She thought, you know, I was just taking them like I was supposed to. Um, but I kept running out weeks before I would get my next prescription. And that was the point I was teaching primary at the church I was going to at the time. And... I was teaching the little seven-year-old kids in primary. I was teaching them a lesson about how Satan traps us and about how 
uses a thread and wraps it around. He shows you how easy it is to break it, and it's no big deal. And eventually, the thread turns into string, and then rope, and then chain. And I remember looking down at myself while I was teaching that lesson, and I envisioned myself bound in chains. I had a serious problem, and I didn't know how to get out of it. So instead of asking for help like I should have, I went deeper. I doubled down. I found another way to get the pills I needed. That's when I started stealing pills. Started out stealing from uh, some friends of ours, a sweet couple in our ward, in our church, and I knew when they wouldn't be there, so I'd just go to their house. Nobody ever locks their doors in you know, country towns, and I'd just take a few, hope they wouldn't notice. I remember the first time I did that, I was... I left the house, snuck back out, got my car, and drove off fast as I could. I was literally shaking. I, I was sick to my stomach. I felt so horrible. But then I, I snorted those pills, and instantly that all goes away. Wow. I felt amazing again. And that's when I realized I would do anything to keep this feeling going, anything to not feel as sick as I, as I have been, you know, when the pills run out. Unfortunately, at that point, uh, my life started to spiral out of control. I felt so much guilt and shame from stealing the pills. At the same time, I needed more and more. So I became a kind of a master thief with my knowledge of law enforcement. I knew how to not leave evidence. And I stole pills from a lot of people in a lot of places. I'm still ashamed of it to this day. That person was not me. I mean, I could get away with it because everyone thought, you know, Jane, he's, a, he's such a nice, sweet guy. You know, he's done everything he's supposed to in his life. He was a police officer. He's a good, honest man. Of course, I was never even in the suspicion. Right. Um, so I got away with it for years. I hated myself. But you to, also couldn't stop. I couldn't stop. Yeah. I didn't know what else to do. I was so ashamed to admit it. Can but, I add one thing real quick? Mm -hmm. I was just going to say, so pornography addiction is also a big addiction. Someone close to me that has struggled with pornography addiction, pornography addiction for me is like, it's like thinking about what the pioneers did. And I'm talking about the Utah pioneers, whatever, coming here. Mm -hmm. But there's pioneers everywhere that have done this. Burying people on the sides, doing all these things in the cold. I would rather do that than do this addiction, but I still choose it. Exactly. And it was never, that like really put it in perspective for me of how strong it is. It's like the self-hatred is just enveloping uh -huh. and you still choose it. Go no, ahead. That's, that's exactly right. I hated myself. I hated everything about what I was doing, but it was, it was worth it to not feel that torture. And, and lots of people see that as a, as a weak excuse, you know, just suffer through it. But once you've experienced that, especially for a long time, years and years and years, going back to the real world, it's nothing ever will feel as good or taste as good or smell as good. The whole, the regular world is just gray in comparison when you feel good all the time. So that's really hard to choose to go back to that, especially when you have to suffer through physical and mental torture to get there. If that makes any sense. Yeah. But eventually it gets the best of everybody. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what it did to me. Did you get in more hardcore drugs? Yes, I did. Um, while I was trying to get better, actually, uh, once I left the pills, then other things came in. Heroin came in for a while. It's cheaper. It's stronger. It's kind of a natural progression, unfortunately, for people who get addicted to pills. Mm -hmm. Eventually, heroin's more readily available and cheaper. 
and a lot better than stealing, at least in the addicted mind, it's better than <laughs> right. stealing pills from people that you care mm -hmm. about. And then when that gets to be too much and you start nodding out at work, I started using meth to stay awake. Trading one thing for another is thing we do a lot in addiction when we're trying to figure out how to escape. It seems stupid. It is insanity, but it's a disease with sanity. Fortunately, I didn't get into that for very long before I was given a way out. And did you have any more children at this point? I believe our fourth was born, yeah. Our fourth was born at that time, too. And at this point, does your wife know you have the problem? She does. At this okay. point, we've talked about it. She's tried desperately to get me help and just doesn't know where to go. Mm -hmm. uh, Wyoming really doesn't have much for addiction recovery. Right. Uh, we're extremely lucky, especially in Salt Lake Valley. There are so many resources available, and more and more nowadays there is, but a decade ago there really wasn't anything available. We moved back to our hometown, moved in with my family, my parents again, having four kids, and as an adult, it was a horrible experience, but I thought that's what we needed to do so I could get my head clear. I ended up getting a job at a pharmaceutical manufacturing company that manufactures opiates. <laughs> it was uh, not, not a good place to be. I had access to as much as I wanted of yeah, pure drugs. So it started getting worse, kept getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, eventually, it came to a point where... So, were you stealing from your job at that point? I was. Okay. I was stealing from my job. I was stealing from everyone I knew who I could figure out had a prescription. Most people keep old prescriptions in the medicine cabinet or in the cabinet next to the sink in the kitchen, uh, in the closet, in the hallway. They've got old, you know, perks that are hydrocodone from a tooth that got pulled out. Mm -hmm. Most people do, at least did. It's getting better now. People are getting rid of their old prescriptions, but... Yeah, back then, it was everywhere. Yeah. I stayed thick in it just by stealing people's old pills for probably two years. But it was getting to the point where I was sick of it. I absolutely hated it. I hated myself. Like I said, I wanted out. I attempted suicide. I didn't know whatever that. I could. Yeah. I'm sorry. It got to the point where I hated myself so much and I did not escape. I felt like I was such a burden on my wife and children that I, I overdosed on the pills and alcohol together. Just on trying, purpose yeah, to, trying to, to kill, kill yourself. Um, I woke up with a police officer standing over me who I knew very well. I knew all the officers around there, which made the next part of my story the most humiliating and humbling experience of my life. And he was standing over me. I had cut myself with a hunting knife on my arms uh, over 40 times. I broke all my fishing rods. I smashed my phone. I barricaded myself in the house and I went to sleep. Thought I'd never wake up, but I did. Um, ended up going to a little tiny rehab kind of mental facility. Got some help from some amazing people. That was the first time I'd actually gotten help from, from anybody who specialized in this sort of thing. I saw a psychiatrist, started getting on medications that were helped me. Unfortunately, most of them made it worse because I was still using at the same time. Right. And mixing them was always a bad idea. Um, but that was when I did my, my last theft. I stole from my aunt and uncle at this point as suspicion was finally coming towards me. People kind of seeing what was going on. And at this point, I wanted to get caught. I was so sick of getting away with it. I was sick of being such a dirtbag and people still loving me. I hated myself and they still right. loved me. I didn't understand why. And I was too afraid to kill myself after that last experience. Why were you afraid? Because I saw how it affected my family and friends and how many people still loved me and cared about me. And I was afraid of what would happen to them um, if I 
did take the selfish way out. So the way I looked at it was extremely selfish, but I also understand why people get to that point. Um, once you've been there, it's kind of like the drugs. It's something you've always got in your peripheral yeah. uh, way out. It's always there. Yeah. And so it like, makes it even harder. You have to work even harder to deal with that and to mm-hmm. move on with your life. Um, but that's when everything changed. I was playing games with my kids that night. Uh, it was like 8 o'clock in the evening, and there was a knock at the door. I opened the door, and there's uh, two sheriff's deputies standing there. Both I knew very well. Uh, one of them had tears in his eyes. He said, James, we have a warrant for your arrest, and handcuffed me in front of my kids. Took me to the police car. It was the first time I'd been in the backseat of a car. <laughs> and it was absolutely humiliating. And I got uh, locked up for a few days. And <clears throat> being an outdoors person, especially like I am, being locked in a tiny cell is the most horrifying experience. I was losing my mind. Plus, having to detox for the first time, all on my own. I just was going crazy, pacing circles, literally losing my mind. And I'd scrape my knuckles around and around and around until I scraped clear down to the bone before I even noticed it. Oh my gosh. Just horrible thing like that. It was a very humbling experience. Being able to finally start making amends, forced to make amends, but... Um, I was able to detox for the first time and actually get my mind clear. Um, I had to go through hell for days and days and days. So did your aunt and uncle, are they the ones that turned you in? They did. Probably out of love. Yeah, they struggled with it. Very difficult decision they they finally had to make. We're closer than ever now. I'm so grateful to them for having the courage to do that. Uh, they didn't have any proof. I I pled guilty to all of it, being led into the courtroom in orange jumpsuit and handcuffed ankles and hands. It was it was a horrible thing to have my family see me like that. Now everybody knew what I was. And, yeah, there's no secret anymore. Yeah, it was kind of a, a freeing experience. At the same time, it was now I can't hide from it anymore. My mother came and uh, visited me in jail and told me a story that absolutely changed everything. This is kind of the pivotal moment where I decided... So this is like rock bottom, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Rock bottom was being handcuffed in front of your kids, taken to jail. Locked up in a box. You don't know if it's day or night. I mean, oh it was gosh. a whole experience. Not being able to see the sun for weeks and weeks. Sorry, I thought you were in jail only a few days. Uh, the first time I was in there for a few days. I got out. I... Failed the UA a few days later and... What's got, a UA? Uh, urinary analysis. So did you use again after that? I did. Okay, and then they did a urine analysis. Yeah, I was uh, smoking marijuana with my cousins trying to stay away from the pills. They said it's a little help. It'll make yeah. you feel better without having to go back to the pills. Did you know you were going to have a urine analysis? Um, I knew it was a possibility. Okay. I hoped it wasn't going to happen, but at that point I didn't care. Right. Uh, I just, yeah, wanted to feel good again without going back to the pills. So I did it, and mm-hmm. then uh, I got an officer came and knocked at the door and said, I need you to come out of the station for a UA. My heart sank. I knew I was done for. But I went anyways. We chatted about the good old days, and then got to see the disappointment in his eyes when he saw the tests and had to put the handcuffs on me again and took me back into the jail. And this time I was absolutely terrified because I'd already been there for a few days, and I knew how horrible that was. Now with probation revocation, I get all the time from the time they let me out before, which was about three months. Oh my gosh, so you were in jail for three months? Yeah. Holy the second God. time I was in there for three months. But at that point, I was ready I was ready to do whatever I had to do to make up for it to change. 
The first time I was in jail, my mom had came and visited me and told me a story uh, that changed my life forever. At that time, my little boy was only, I think he was five or six years old. Um, she said he had been at church with her that Sunday and standing and looking at a picture on the wall. And it's a beautiful picture of Jesus in the middle. And on one side, it's dark and everyone's crying and wailing. And on the other side, everybody's light and happy and they're praising Jesus. And it's a gorgeous painting. And he was looking at it and he said, uh, am I going to go to heaven? And she said, of course, you know, all good boys go to heaven. You're going you're gonna to go to heaven with Heavenly Father. Um, and he said, I don't want to go to heaven. She said, well, why on earth would you not want to go to heaven? <clears throat> And he said, because I want to be with my dad. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. I'm crying too. It's fine. <laughs> That's the point when I realized my kids deserve better. And I deserve better. And it was time to do the right thing. I knew that wasn't going to be easy, but I was finally willing to do whatever it took. So during that three months in jail, my amazing brother called and got uh, got me a bed at a treatment facility at the VOA Northern Rockies in Sheridan, Wyoming. Uh, that's how I became introduced to where I work now. They got me a bed. It took three months to do it. So I had to sit in jail and worry about if anybody's going to recognize that I was a police officer and jump me in the pods or what was going to happen in this absolute nightmare. And my wife was contemplating leaving me at this point. I didn't blame her at all. Her life just come crashing down how humiliating it must have been to be your kids. You want to stay with your husband for your kids, but he's in jail and he's a thief and a drug addict. And so she had her own battles to go through. To this day, I don't know why she stuck with me, but she, she said she covenanted to be with me and it was meant to be. And so yeah. she stuck with I'm me. I'm so glad she did. Most, most women would not. I, I'm incredibly blessed to have someone that stuck with me through all the horrible things I put our family through. But I ended up going to Volunteers of America in Sheridan. as a 90-day treatment program, and it absolutely saved my life. It was amazing. I got to spend time with therapists and find out what addiction was and how it happened and how to get out of it, most importantly. My family ended up moving to Sheridan. So they got out of treatment and got a job there, and we, yeah, started our lives over again. You used a lot of words that make me cringe because I know those words in their heart. Words like humiliation, shame. Sounds like you're still demons for you. Talk to me about the people that had compassion and you're connected with me. Talk to me about your wife's forgiveness maybe as well. I had so many people who showed me love. Part of the healing process is making amends for the things you've done. So many people that I had to go to and, and pay for forgiveness. Some maybe never will forgive me, but incredible to me, the people that did that loved me despite hurting them over and over and over, just learned how to trust me again. And some of them never stopped trusting me. Some of the people I stole pills from, uh, as soon as I got out of treatment, they wanted me to come over and while we were staying there, watch their animals. Wow. Just watch their house. They, they had me house sit at their house <laughs> after I got out of jail and out of treatment and after I admitted to them what I'd done to them and begged their forgiveness, they immediately trusted me again. That was worth a lot. Uh, my wife stuck with me. My children who saw horrible things. Uh, I forgot to tell you about uh, when I got out of jail the second time, I had a little stash of, of pills left over and I thought I could you know, jump right back in where I was and I ended up overdosing and I died on the couch in front of my two little baby girls. 
And uh, my wife had been at the store at the time, and something told her to get home now. And she left the store, got back in the car, and came back home and walked into me, gasping, trying to breathe. She called an ambulance, and they, they got there right before I stopped breathing and were able to resuscitate me. There's miracle after miracle. There's no reason I should be here right now, but I'm here. So God wants there must be a reason. reason. Yeah. And that's why I do what I do, uh, working with the folks who are in the same or much worse similar situations than I've been in. Most of the people I work with every day are homeless. They've lost everything. They've been been through things that are hard to hard to even talk about. So I'm incredibly blessed. My story is really not that difficult compared to many of the people I hear about every single day. So it's great to be able to share my story with them and be able to relate to them and to show them that there is a way out. I've been clean and sober now for almost seven years. It's possible. Every day is a struggle, but it is absolutely possible. You get your life back no matter how far down the tunnel you've gone. When I've talked to other addicts, they say <clears throat> once an addict, always an addict. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Do you consider yourself still an, a drug addict? Yes, I am an addict in recovery. And why is that? Why is that important to um, accept that? I guess that you're always a, you're going to be an addict forever. It's a very controversial thing. Um, some people believe that you can reach a point where you're no longer an addict. Um, where it's not a temptation anymore. I think I've reached that point where it's not a temptation to use anymore, but I know that if I did, I would immediately be back to his square one. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, I consider myself an addict. I know that I can't use. And like I said before, it's something that's always there every mm -hmm. single day. It's never really going to go away. My life now is trying to live life on life's terms. Even having these escapes that I know that right Exist. now I could escape immediately from all my trials and troubles and choosing not to do that every yeah. day is... That is would be hard. It, is. it absolutely is, but it gets easier. <laughs> I, I can't do drugs. I can tell that I would not do well with that. That, that would be hard, you know, that instant relief. I can so see the temptation there. You're one of the most empathetic people I've met. You can't not notice that about Jane Kelly. You know, you're incredibly compassionate, incredibly empathetic. How has that been from your struggle? I really appreciate that. Um, that, to me, is the most important thing in the world. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm still alive. People need to feel that others understand and that they care, especially when you're down in the darkest parts of these tunnels. One person can save your life. One story. That's why the 12-step meetings, I feel, are so important. Anybody out there who's struggling, get yourself involved in a 12-step meeting. Be around other addicts, other people who struggle with what you've struggled with. It's the only way to get out. Well, it comes back to that connection factor. We need each other. When we're by ourselves and we're isolated, we are so vulnerable because we can just believe the voices in our head. Exactly. But if we're all together, it's a lot harder to fail. That's exactly right. If there's someone listening that is struggling with an addiction specifically, what advice would you give them? Reach out for help. Don't wait till you hit rock bottom. I see it all the time. People think that you have to hit rock bottom before you'll quit. And in some people's cases, that might be true. I know I never would have quit without, you know, getting locked up, without the struggles. Well, and the um, possibility of losing your entire family, it exactly, sounds like, right? Exactly. I hope that someday I can help somebody before they get to that point. My life is dedicated to helping people who are at rock bottom. But anyone who's listening, if you can get out, do it now. Ask somebody, open up, be a little bit humble, and ask for help. That's all you have to do. There's so many resources available to us nowadays. 
There's phone numbers you can call. There's places you can go for free. People will listen. Just reach out to at least one person. Get out before before it just takes over your life. What advice would you give to people who are maybe spouses of an addict, whether it's drugs, whether it's pornography, a spouse, a friend, a parent, a child? We all know someone that's an addict. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. What are some ways to, to see somebody? What can we do for people that are that are struggling with an addiction? And we want to help, but obviously they're the only ones that can do it. Mm-hmm. But what can we do to make that process as easy as possible? Because it's going to be hard no matter what. It is. You just have to love them. Uh, if it wasn't for the people in my life I've talked to you about that loved me despite all the things I've done, that forgave me, that don't bring it up over and over and over, that let me get on with my life after I really do move on. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be where I'm at right now. You've got to have compassion. It's hard to understand addiction if you don't experience it yourself, but everybody can love everybody's human being. Everybody has some sort of addiction that they're dealing with. Whether it's something very minor to something extremely serious, everybody has addiction. We just got to remember that nobody's perfect. Everybody needs help sometimes. And if they're not ready to change, you can't make them change. Don't try it. It'll make everything worse. It'll ruin your relationship. Sometimes you have to wait until they're ready. And hopefully that's not when they hit rock bottom. But in the meantime, just love them. That's all you can do. Do you think it's okay to set up boundaries with people that have addictions? Absolutely. You have to. As an addict, I can tell you, we we will use you to the absolute end if we can. You have to be very careful that loving someone is not enabling them, uh, especially when it comes to giving them money so that they can get their drugs. They'll tell you it's for a million other things. They'll steal the money out of your purse and help you look for it. You have to be careful. You have to set up clear boundaries and stick to them. Sometimes loving them does not include giving them the things that they want. If you're enabling them to stay in the lifestyle they're in, they're never going to change. I know you were a little bit hesitant to do an interview, but you decided to. Tell me why. It's it's hard to be vulnerable. You yeah. know, I'm still kind of <laughs> hiding from it, even though it's my job. And yeah. I mean, there's still I still have unresolved things that I'm working through. It's a daily struggle, and some days are harder than others. But I know I've been through this for a reason, and I'm not afraid to tell my story. I'm just I'm still a little scared of being vulnerable. For sure. It's not like I've told my whole life story on this podcast because there are things I'm like, we're not there yet, not you know? Yeah. But I just, I appreciate you being so brave and sharing. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Thank you. And I think it's a really brave decision. And I, I look at you knowing your story and I just think I have so much respect for you. It was interesting once, um, I've had you watch my kids a couple times and randomly one day I remembered when I was driving away, I was like, huh, James calls himself a drug addict. I hope this isn't too personal I'm sharing, but I remember thinking that. And it was so crazy to me that I was like, I would trust my life to him. I would trust my kids to him. But on paper, we hear these things about what an addict is. Yeah. Addicts are people too. Exactly. Everybody I mean, has an addiction and that doesn't mean there's not right or wrong, right? There's things right. that you've had to take care of, right? Yeah. You're yeah. a good one. Thank you. <laughs> we that, love you a lot. It means a lot. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you very much. James Kelly. He's the best. He's seriously one of the nicest people I've ever met. I heard somewhere a quote that says something like, don't let your challenges harden you, let them soften you. 
And that makes me think of James Kelly because to me, he's the epitome of someone who has had great challenges in his life, some in his control, some not, but he's let them soften him instead of hardening him. And he just extends that softness to everybody around him. It's pretty neat. If you want to support the podcast, you can do it one of three ways. You can buy podcast apparel with free shipping. You can buy Mary Kay at 25% off, or you can donate to the cost of the podcast. You can do all three of those things at icupodcast.com and just click on support the podcast. Next week, I'm going to be discussing a hot topic. It's a, a topic which sometimes leads us toward disconnection if we're not careful. And that topic is race. I will have my good friend, John, here, who's very tall and very funny, and he's just a big teddy bear, and he's from Georgia, and he is also African-American. And so he's going to help me discuss how race can unite us or divide us. My name is Julie Lee, and I see you.